Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 13 through 23. Listen as God speaks his word. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. For this reason, three times in the letter to the Ephesians, Paul uses this phrase, for this reason. And we're going to look at one of those passages this morning. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 1. Now, it's likely that the letter we call the letter to the Ephesians was not written only to the church in Ephesus. Instead, as you'll see on the map, it was probably written as a circular letter to Ephesus, Laodicea, Colossae, and Hierapolis. Now, you'll notice that they all sit on a river called the Lycus River, and so they were known as the churches of the Lycus River Valley. Now, there are two reasons for thinking that Paul actually wrote this letter to all of those churches rather than just to Ephesus. First, Paul doesn't greet anyone in particular at either the beginning of this letter or at the end, which is really strange considering that Paul spent over two years in Ephesus. And you know, in lots of his letters, he greets particular people. He doesn't do that in in the Ephesians. However, since Paul had never personally visited the other three cities it makes sense that he left out those personal greetings. Second, however, and probably most important, in the earliest and best manuscripts we have of the letter to the Ephesians, the words to Ephesus don't show up, inclining people to think that it was added at some later point. This, however, is one of those facts which preachers like to make a big deal about, but which in our lives today really don't make much difference. (laughs) Indeed, all Paul's letters eventually went to all of the churches in Asia Minor, Greece, and Rome. So what is actually more significant and helpful for us to know is that the churches to which Paul wrote all saw the world as a place filled with supernatural beings, many of which were there to do them harm. This was particularly true in the Lycus River Valley that stretched from Ephesus up to Colossae, Hierapolis, and Laodicea. So, when Paul writes in Ephesians about all rule and authority and power and dominion, 
the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in sons of disobedience, the devil, the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, and the evil one, people knew exactly what he was talking about. These were the unseen spiritual forces who caused them untold problems and trouble in their day-to-day lives. These were the forces they felt powerless to overcome. So they resorted to any number of practices to try to appease them on the one hand and gain their favor uh, on the other. This might involve sacrificing to pagan shrines and temples, buying statues and setting them up as places of prayer in their homes, paying priests to cast spells or break spells that had been cast on them or on their businesses. You see, for these early believers, the issue of power and control was all important. Because without power over those unseen forces, life descended into chaos. Children got sick, wives died in childbirth, crops failed, invading armies ravaged cities and towns, businesses failed. In short, people felt threatened from every side. So they sought for control wherever they could. Now imagine to yourself that that's the world that you lived in, day in and day out, with this terrible feeling of having no control over your destiny or the world in which you lived. Now, you might say, well, I'm sure glad that's changed. But has it? Who has felt in control in the last 18 months with the COVID epidemic that has hit us? With the best insights that medicine can give us, and that's why we do the things we do. We get vaccinated, we wear masks, we distance, all those sorts of things. Do you still, do you feel in control? Do you feel like you've got this? How many of us, living in a world as well-educated and highly technological as we are, really feel that you're in control in, in your life, that there aren't other forces at work that you can't control? Are we that different? from the people that lived in the Lycus River Valley, really? Why, why, for example, do people still play with Ouija boards? Oh, it's just a game, isn't it? Why is the Living Dead series on TV the longest-running TV series in America? Is it because we just want to be entertained by these supernatural uh, zombies? Why do movies that deal with the supernatural have such an appeal? Is it not perhaps because something inside of us knows that there is an unseen world that impinges upon our lives here and now? Are we really so different from the people in Ephesus? Probably not. But until those unseen powers that Paul mentions were defeated and brought under control... People lived in fear. Consequently, what we see in this letter to the Ephesians is an emphasis on the defeat of these spiritual powers in the first three chapters of the letter, followed by an equal emphasis on what they can do using the resources that they already possess as human beings created in the image of God on the other to become holy, as God is holy. But here's the point. Until those unseen powers had been conquered and dealt with, 
the people didn't feel free to be able to use their God-given abilities, their God-given self-control, their God-given insights to live a life of following Jesus. And it's just fascinating to see how Ephesians deals in those early chapters, talking about those cosmic powers. Mentions them again in chapter 6 with the armor of God being put on. But from that point on, 4, 5, and 6, he's really talking about practical things you can do now that the spiritual enemy has been put in its place and you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. In Africa, in 1900, there were about 10 million Christians. And the church was dominated by foreign missionaries, the leadership. Between 1900 and 2000, when that leadership shifted from the foreign missionaries to the indigenous African peoples, the church in Africa grew from 10 million to 500 million. Half a billion believers in 100 years. Why? The single most important reason was that the people who lived in fear of these same cosmic powers that the Ephesians did discovered in the Holy Spirit a power greater than any of them. And so you would have stories of um, pastors talking about their church and said, the only reason we're here is because God, by his Holy Spirit, healed us. We would be dead if it weren't for that. And they weren't speaking metaphorically. They meant really and in fact. Remember the story of uh, the disciples being in the boat and there was a big storm and Jesus comes walking to them on the water and uh, Peter says, Lord, I'd kind of like to walk on the water too. Can Can you make that happen? Jesus says, yeah, step out of the boat. Peter steps out of the boat and he's walking on water. But then remember what happens? He gets afraid and he starts to sink. I happened to hear a sermon on that passage given by a, a professor of surgery at Oxford University. And here's what he said. He said, when the storms of life begin to swirl all around you and you begin to grow anxious and you take your eyes off of Jesus, you will begin to sink into despair. But Turn your eyes upon Jesus again and you'll be lifted up. I then went and talked to a friend of mine from Liberia and I said, Pastor Kofi, have you ever preached on that passage? And he said, yes, many times. I said, and what was your point when you preached on it? He said, well, when you believe in Jesus, you can walk on water. (laughs) The one treated it as a metaphor for psychological, emotional well-being. The other took it at its word and said, faith in Jesus can result in people walking on water. Do you see the difference between the two? And the church in Africa grew from 10 million to 500 million because they were willing to trust that God could do what his word says he can do. Another friend of mine who's a professor, Gordon Conwell, Uh, was in Africa and he was teaching a class in theology and after two weeks he'd done a great job. He's an extraordinarily good teacher. One of the students came up and said to him, Pastor, that was was really good stuff, but when are you going to teach us how to cast out demons? Not a question he'd ever been asked at Gordon-Conwell, but of absolute importance 
in Africa. Now, are we not grateful that we have medicine? Are we not grateful that we have psychiatrists, that we have psychologists, that we have all kinds of people well-trained to help us with the many issues that we have? But are we ever in danger of the same mistake that Hezekiah made in the Old Testament where he got sick and he only consulted the doctors and didn't also pray to the Lord? The Bible is a word that says it's both the unseen and the seen. It is both the spiritual and the material that we have to take into account if we want to live lives that are fully pleasing to God on the one hand and abundant, as Jesus promised in John chapter 10, and abundant uh, on the other. So this morning, I want us to look at this passage where in verses 13 and 14, Paul gives thanks for their salvation in Jesus Christ and then the thing I most want to focus and the fact that they've been sealed by the Holy Spirit who is now the guarantee of their salvation. Paul might have said, you can know you're truly saved because you have the Holy Spirit in you. To the Romans, you'll remember later on, he'll say, you know when your heart wants to cry out to God, Abba, Father? That's not you. That's the Holy Spirit working in you. Paul wants to say that that doctrine's important, but it's not ultimately the test of whether your salvation is real. The actual test, the real test, is the experience of God, the Holy Spirit, in you. Do you find that you're becoming kinder over time? And not just because you're working at it more, but because something is at work in you to make you a kinder, gentler, more patient person? The Bible wants to say that's the test, the guarantee of your salvation, that the Holy Spirit is at work in you. And so, in Ephesians 1, the passage that Brian read to us, Paul's going to add a couple of other things to help us look at this issue of the Holy Spirit and being sealed by it. And the first, of course, is that our, we have faith in Christ and love for one another. Now, again, many people want to say, well, I have faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. But the Bible says the only reason you have faith is because the Holy Spirit did something in you to make you alive to the possibility of having faith. It's called regeneration. So faith in Jesus is, is one of the points that is a mark of the seal of the Holy Spirit. But there's also the love for one another. Is there anything more contrary to the truth of the gospel than to find a church that's fighting among themselves? I mean, that's the church I'm looking for to join. No. You want a church where people care about one another. A a church where people respect one another, even when they have differences on other things. You want a church where people you know are going above and beyond to do the things for you, even when you can't pay them back. That's what Christian love is. It's doing for others, expecting nothing in return. Now, if you want a church to grow, have that kind of love for one another. People will find out in no time at all. 
It's what they said about the early church. Look how they love one another. Well, what were they talking about? Well, they were talking about the fact that when there were poor among them, they supported them, made it possible for them to prosper. They were talking about the Christians going out onto the hillsides around Rome and picking up the babies that had been left there by parents that didn't want them, taking them home and raising them as their own. Christians in Africa, when they saw the missionaries come, were amazed. Because in the Gold Coast, a country we now know as Ghana, the average life expectancy of a missionary in the late 19th century was 18 months. Malaria, different diseases would get them and they would die. But they kept coming. And the Africans couldn't believe it. So why are they doing this? because of the love God had given them by his spirit that prompted them to keep coming. So that's, that's the first thing uh, that we see. Secondly, Paul mentions, you can know that you're sealed by the Holy Spirit because God has given you a spirit of wisdom and a revealed knowledge of Jesus. Now I want to make a couple of points here. First, wisdom is not the same as intelligence. Wisdom is the ability to know and do what Jesus would do in your place. And we have access to that wisdom through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Some of you remember the, that great movie, Chariots of Fire. You might not know that Eric Little, after running in the Olympics, after getting his degree, went to China as a missionary. And he was interned in the Second World War in a kind of a concentration camp. And the story is told about him in that camp. Uh, by the way, he was a, he was a chemistry teacher. And uh, from memory, he wrote out a chemistry textbook to use with the children of the other missionaries who were in that same concentration camp. But the story is told of one, one day... Um, he was walking along and a, a person stopped him and asked him if he would do something for him. Something for the camp. And the person observing said that Eric Little just stopped and didn't say anything. Then a moment later said, yes, I'll do it. And the person couldn't figure out what he was doing until he realized that Eric had been praying and saying, Lord, is this something you would have me do? He listened to the still, small voice of God's spirit before he moved on. I had an university leader back in college, Craig McDonald, and Craig told us one time that every day he would start out this way. He would say, Lord, here's my schedule. Here's what I know is coming up. How would you have me prepare for this meeting with the student that I'm going to have, for this phone call that I'm going to be making later in the day to help raise support? for this Bible study that I'm going to be preparing for a small group that I'm going to be leading later this week. He said, Lord, what would you have me do? And he would work out in prayer how he's going to have those conversations, how he's going to do his preparation. Because he believed that the Holy Spirit was in him to give him wisdom. He would use his intelligence, and he was a bright guy, but he wanted the wisdom of God that came from relying on the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul also notes that not the knowledge we have in Jesus is a revealed knowledge. Now, that's an interesting thing to pause and consider, isn't it? 
the knowledge that we have about God is revealed. We didn't make it up. In fact, the story of the gospel is really rather peculiar when you stop and think about it. Who would make up a story about a God sending a son to die on a cross, rising again from the grave, ascending to the right hand of the Father where he now prays for you day and night and one day will return to establish his eternal kingdom? That's not a story you can just make up. That was revealed to us. And Paul will tell us in Corinthians that the only reason we believe it is not because it makes sense on the surface of it, but because the Holy Spirit convinces us supernaturally that it's true, that it's real, that it describes the God who really exists and the things that he has really done for the likes of us. So here's the good news. You can be wise no matter how intelligent you are. And wisdom is far, far better than mere intelligence. Wisdom shows us the beauty of the gospel revealed to us in Scripture and most especially in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The beauty of the gospel. We live in a world that's not very beautiful all too often. But the beauty of the gospel is a beauty that we know is not just for this age, but also the age to come. And it's the Holy Spirit in us that enables us to live with that beauty, experience that beauty, and the abundant life of Christ. Finally, Paul, knowing that we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, prays. And he prays that the eyes of their hearts might be opened. Now, again, isn't that an odd phrase? The eyes of your heart to be open. We think of our eyes being opened, but not our hearts. So what's he driving at? Well, if we assume that he means heart of hearts, that place where we hold on to the most important and precious things in our lives, then he's praying that in our heart of hearts, we would see clearly and choose freely a life in Christ. And that life will involve three things, according to our text. First, the hope of our calling, by which Paul means the hope of living now a life freed from the chaos of the evil one and the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places that he mentions, who at one time terrorized the lives of those Ephesian believers and would terrorize ours today, even if in different ways. And being freed from their power in our lives, we now have hope. We are now free to live fully as children of God, created in his image and made just a little lower than the angels. That's the hope of our calling. But secondly, he wants us to know the glorious riches of the church. Now, what's interesting is the full phrase is the, the, the inheritance that is Jesus's that we get to experience the riches of, but that's just the church that he's talking about. Jesus wants you to experience all of the riches of being a part of the body of Christ. It's an extraordinarily high calling for the church on the white hand, right, one hand. But when we experience it, when we experience that forgiveness that comes when we've messed up, not the first time, but the tenth, when we experience that grace of people looking at us knowing that we have stumbled and fallen, but they're not willing to give up on us, when we experience from other people 
saying to us, listen, I understand because I'm no different than you. The mistakes you've made are the mistakes I've made. The shame that you have felt is the shame that I've felt. But listen, Jesus hasn't forsaken you. And I'm here to let you know that. You can't see him, but you can see me. And I'm not going to forsake you either. Those are the riches of the church that Paul's talking about. Finally, Paul prays that they will know the immeasurable greatness of Christ's power, of God's power. And of course Paul would pray for that. He wanted them to experience a power over those things that had been creating chaos in their lives, that had been holding them back, oppressing them. And because they've been sealed in the Holy Spirit, those enemies have been defeated and they are now freed up to use all of the gifts of God to become more and more like Jesus. Now, what he acknowledges is we can't do it on our own. We need that power and presence of the Holy Spirit in us for it to happen. But God doesn't talk about those things. And Scripture doesn't remind us of these things, except that they're true and possible. Remember that. It, true? Yes, but on its own, truth hardly makes sense. But possible. Now that's different. That I can become more and more like Jesus is the good news of the gospel. Among our deacons and elders in, in Charlotte, we began to do a thing where they would write their spiritual autobiographies. Where did God meet you when you were a child? Where did you experience God as a teenager? How have you seen God in your life as an adult, in your business, in your family, your marriage? And so they would write these out, and uh, they were so impressive that one of our, our deacons who in 15 years had never missed the opening day of deer hunting season in South Carolina, chose to skip it in order to be at the deacon's meeting because he wanted to hear the other testimonies so badly. So one night, uh, one of our young deacons um, said that as a college student, he had gotten arrested and had to spend a night in jail. Didn't tell us the exact reason, but at any rate, he was arrested and spent a night in jail. And he said, that was the moment when I had to come face to face with who I was and who I wanted to be. And if I was going to continue on that path, or was I going to return to the Lord? It was one of those come to Jesus moments for him. Well, after he shared, as was our custom, everybody went around and said, here's a place where my story with God intersects with your story. And also, here's something that I've seen in you that I want to affirm. Do you know that fully half of our deacons had spent a night in jail? And God had used that as a moment to do business with them. 
So from then on, we made uh, spending a night in jail was a prerequisite for becoming a deacon uh, in the church. So I, I, I heard that story, and I, I went and I talked to Sam Cornwell. Uh, now, Sam was kind of the Warren McGee of, <coughs> uh, of, of uh, Westminster. And I, I tell him this story, and he starts laughing. And he said, Trevor, he said, when I was younger, the only reason I didn't get arrested and spend night just because I could run faster than the policeman who was chasing me. <laughs> God, the Holy Spirit, can change you from the inside out. And he always does it within the context of this body of believers that you're sitting with this morning. The Holy Spirit and the community of faith, the church, are the two great gifts that God has given to you and me so that we can live out lives that are not paltry, that are not just barely making it, but lives of abundance. Where scripture can say we are more than conquerors. That's the life to which God is calling you and me today. And when that life is lived out before the watching world that right now is desperate and hurting, they will notice and they will ask, what's the deal? At which point you'll be able to tell them the good news of the gospel that is for them because God loves them. Amen.